In the year to left, backing up Bautista, all the way to the wall. See you later. Wow, Tristan Casas has homered in his second AAA at bat. That was impressive. Ryan Fitzgerald. He really only needs Fitzy. five letters in his name. Fitzy! To induce those grounders. Swing and a miss for strike three. Second punch out for Brian Bayo. Yo one is hit high and deep. Back into right center field. Forget about it. Off the scoreboard. He hit himself. He hit his pitcher on the scoreboard. A two-run shot for Vanellis, and it's two. Red Sox Nation understands that our goal is winning. It's winning over a long period of time, and sometimes that requires difficult decisions in the moment, but we always have to keep our eye on that ball of making this team as good as possible for as long as possible. Have you ever been to any of the other um, sports Hall of Fames at all? Um, I've been to the – I just recently, actually, when I was in Toronto for the wild card, I stopped by the Hockey Hall of Fame, so I got a chance to see that. I have not been to basketball or football yet, but I've been in touch with um, the heads of those um, halls, and. Uh, I've been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So they're all on my to-do list. There's definitely, there's a lot of places I got to try to get to, but um, growing up out West and, and, and spending most of my life out West, I didn't, I didn't get a whole lot of chances to hit up uh, Springfield or Canton. It wasn't, uh, wasn't quite as easy to get to, but honestly, now that I'm in this role, I realize it's much easier than you think it is. I could ease, I could, I could take a trip to Springfield this weekend and, and and I plan to hit I plan to hit both of those sometime in 2023. Yeah, Canton is a, is a is a great place. I went there um maybe maybe 10 years ago. Um it's weird too it's in like a super small town. It's it's almost like a little I mean, I don't know if they built it up since, but you're you know you go down this road, it's almost like pulling into like a retail plaza. It's just like it's randomly like right there. Um but incredibly overwhelming. I haven't had the opportunity to go up to um Cooperstown yet it's definitely something I will do um it's on that bucket list of places to go um but it, just to be like back next to that history you know I'm obviously I'm a Patriots fan being from this area you know and just seeing whether it's the helmets or the uniforms they wore during the Super Bowls or the cleat whatever it might be it just brings all of that memory and nostalgia back um which I'm kind of envious you get to see and live that every single day so that's that's pretty cool yeah, you nailed it. I mean, it, I think any of us, I would say we're probably all within a decade of each other. I don't know. It looks like Jim may be a little bit younger than us, but who knows, than I am. I don't know. Um, but I think if you grew up in the call it 70s, 80s, 90s, you, that, that the being able to walk around any of these places and really see um, all these incredible artifacts. I mean, we have 40,000 artifacts in Cooperstown and only 10% of them can be on display in the museum at any given time. But you walk around and it immediately brings you back to your childhood or your twenties of that big moment where Dwight Evans did this or Rich Gedman did that or Mookie Betts did this. And it just all, there's, there's so much cool stuff. Um, I think the big key for us is going to be to figure out how to get the next generation. My son, who's 12 years old, um, thinks that it's cool to see a bat or a glove or a ball. And, and, but I think it's also, he's also got his AirPod in his ear pretty much 24 seven and he's got his phone in his hand and, it's how do we continue to make this place relevant for the next three generations of fans? Because Cooper Sound's going to be here for a long time, and we want to be thinking big picture and long term. Yeah. Is there an artifact that stands out to you, kind of one that's um, special to you that you've kind of seen during your time there? 
I mean, there's, it's funny, we get this question a lot and it's very hard to sum it up, but I'll give, I'll give you a couple that I think just jump out at me. So, so um, part of my job is actually to go to the World Series and actually after that ends, myself and, and John Chestakovsky in our office, we are down in the clubhouse asking guys if they'll contribute an artifact. And so certainly the ones that I've personally been involved in bringing into the hall whether it was Jock Peterson's pearls last year or Dusty Baker's toothpicks this year. Um, even, even though they're only a year or two years old, I still, there's to me that the personal story behind them is really meaningful. Um, but then you, I mean, you walk around the museum, there's, there's a baseball, the last out baseball from the 88 world series um, was donated by the general manager, Fred Clare um, of the Dodgers, who was kind enough when I was an intern to sit down and talk to me about my career in baseball and then when I when I took this job, he said, "Make sure you look after that baseball I donated." So I mean, I could, there's there's hundreds of artifacts. There's an amazing Babe Ruth bat that has uh, from 1927 a notch for each home run he hit that year with that bat. Um, so I think he hit I want to say it was 28 or 29 homers with that one bat, and he was putting a little razor blade notch in the barrel of the bat every time. Um, so it just there are, um, I could literally spend the next hour telling you of really cool artifacts in there. And those are just a couple of them that jump off, off the page. Okay. The toothpick one sounds, sounds like unique, unique one to have there. Yeah. I mean, I wandered into Dusty's office. I, I got the chance to get to know Dusty pretty well back in 2002. I was actually a reporter covering the Giants for MLB.com. And so I spent the whole year around him. And so I, when we were trying to figure out, okay, who's going to talk to Verlander, who's going to talk to Altuve, who's going to talk to Baker. Um, I said, I'll, let me go. I'll go talk to Dusty. And so I wandered into his office um, after he'd done all of his media. And I said, hey, we're, we're going to bring back a jersey already. The team is kind enough to donate your jersey from game two. Um, but I was wondering if you may be willing to give us your wristbands. The, 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 um, and if you remember his wristbands, they're like the old 1980s with the little caricature of Dusty on it. And he said, oh, yeah, of course. And he takes them off and hands them to me. And I said, OK, and this one's going to sound pretty stupid. But what about like your toothpicks? And he's like, seriously? I was like, yeah. I mean, he's like, like you don't want the used ones, right? I said, no, no, just if you have like a little, the container of them. And so he pulled out the container and gave it to us. And I, what we try to do is tell the story of baseball history through meaningful artifacts. So when we're thinking about a, if a guy throws a, a no hitter, we're going to usually ask for his cap. Um, if a guy gets a big home run, we're going to ask for the bat or the helmet as opposed to a glove. And so we just try to think of artifacts that help tell the story. And actually there'll be, um, we update every year. The Autumn Glory exhibit is focused on the, the most recent team to win the World Series. So we probably brought back a dozen different artifacts between um, the Astros and the Phillies. And so we have a Bryce Harper helmet and we've got uh, Jordan Alvarez bat and some other really cool stuff that's going to be uh, part of that exhibit that fans can come check out. Uh, did uh, Christian Vasquez give anything after the being the catcher for that no hitter? Um, what we did for the no hitter, that was, it was an interesting one because it was combined. We actually got a few things. We got um, a baseball signed by the four pitchers plus Vasquez that was used in the game. So it was a game used baseball specifically, but with all of their autographs. Um, we actually went and got uh, John Smoltz's scorecard because he was calling the game on Fox. And so we, we went into the booth and obviously he's a hall of famer and it was the first, first no hitter he had ever called from the booth. And so when John from our office went downstairs to start working on artifacts, I went to the booth to ask Smoltz if he'd give us uh, his 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 scorecard, and he said, "Yeah, of course." So he signed it, and so I think those are two of the things we got. But it's it's very unique when it when it's a no hitter individual 
we pretty much always ask for the hat, but when it's a combined one, it's a little hard to figure out how you tell that story. And that's what we went with for that one. So you, you just kind of uh, touched on your time. You were with uh, MLB.com for a little bit covering the giants and no, you had spent time with the Dodgers and the D backs as well. Uh, how did the, how did this opportunity that you're currently in, how did that kind of arise? Uh, it's really random, but when you, when you work in the game, as long as, as I have, you just, you meet a ton of people. And one of the people that I met was, was the past president of the hall of fame, Jeff Eidelson, um, who came from a similar background as me, he worked at the Red Sox and Yankees in PR, um, and then eventually became the head of communications at the hall of fame. And then eventually the president of the hall of fame. So I met him a handful of times, um, over the years, but I actually like to say, I, I've told people that I'm. I don't think if it weren't for a round of golf we played in the Dominican Republic like seven or eight years ago, um, we, we spent three or four hours together with him, myself, actually Kim Ang, who the general, general manager of the Marlins, is a very good friend of mine, and John Blundell at MLB. The four of us were playing golf, and I think I rode in the cart, I want to say, with Idelson. But anyway, he he got we got to know each other through that, and I think he's he saw my work from a distance with the Dodgers and D-backs. And when he decided to retire and move on, he called me. I was driving to spring training one day and he said, Hey, have you ever given any thought to my job? Would you ever think that, that would be something you would want to do? And I just not in a million years had I thought about, man, maybe someday I'll live in Cooperstown and, and run the hall of fame. But um, I was obviously told him I was very honored and flattered that he would even think I would be good for this role. And I came home and told my wife, you're not going to believe the call I got this morning. And she said, how would you ever turn that down if you got that position? And he kind of went from there, went through the interview process with, Jane Forbes Clark, our chairman, who's uh, been in, been a part of the hall since she was born. Her grandfather started it, but she's chaired the board for the last 20 years and is a, a major force behind everything we do here. She was the the key interview, I think, in the process. But then I also interviewed with with the search committee, which included the commissioner of baseball and Cal Ripken Jr. and Harvey Schiller, who's a, a titan in the industry. And they they decided, I guess, that I was the right fit. And so uh, I, I, I have to ask this too. So I just going to Cooperstown, uh, we, we booked like a couple days. Uh, I definitely made sure to stay two nights because um, I didn't know what to expect. So like what, what are outside of the hall? Like what are, what kind of things do you recommend to people or what's, what's the best things to do? Cause I, I want to know if I hit some, if I still got to go back. A great question. So there's a lot, I mean, depends on what time of year you come obviously, but if you're a golfer, the, Leatherstocking Golf Course, it's right on the lake there, is incredible. And if you're there in good, if you're here in good weather, um, certainly getting out on the lake. I mean, the lake is a huge part of the life here. Taking a boat out on the lake or canoeing or kayaking, any of those things, there's all sorts of really cool stuff you can do there. Um, we have two other amazing museums in town here. One of them, the Fenimore Art Museum, is a world-class art museum that most people don't realize is, is a mile away from the hall. Um, and the Farmers Museum, if you've got kids and a family, is my, my niece and nephew, my, my niece, my nieces with my brother and his wife were here. They said that was their favorite thing they did when they got here. It's essentially a recreation of a farm from the 19th century. So that, those are really cool. Walking up and down Main Street and just um, taking advantage of all the shopping and the cool stuff that's on Main Street. Got a world class opera at the top of the lake if you're into theater and opera. Uh, most people don't think about that, but um, that's that's right at the top of the lake, as well as Hyde Hall, which is one of the first mansions in America, um, is at the very top of the northern end of the lake, about a 10-minute drive from, from Cooperstown. So 
Uh, we got the Fly Creek Cider Mill. If you like going out and spending time uh, drinking hot apple cider or getting apple treats. I mean, I could go on and on and on. I don't know what else you did, but there's a ton of cool restaurants in the area. I just think there's way more than people realize. And that's why we tell people you definitely want two nights. Um, there are some people who try to jam the whole experience of Cooperstown into three hours. They come in, they do the hall and they leave. But I mean, Double Day Field is a 101-year-old baseball field that's that steps away from from the hall and just wonder if there's a game going on there, which almost every day in the summertime, there's some game going on, whether it's a high school game, a college game, a, a grown adult league baseball game, just, I mean, taking all that stuff in are just some of the things. And then you mentioned actually the Otisaga resort, which is literally across the street from where I live has an amazing fire bar right there that, that I, I like making my, my wife and I go there for drinks all the time. So Taking advantage of that as well is uh, highly recommended. That was one of the most uh, relaxing nights that we've had just out at the, we were there, it was a few weeks after the induction. So it was still warm and uh, it was just like, you were sitting out, you know, the lakes right there. I mean, I highly recommend that place. That was one of the better nights, but we had gone on the, uh, the bet, the, the beverage and wine tour that goes through there i was thinking i totally forgot to mention yeah. the beverage wine tour absolutely man that, that was is... great they, yeah. there was some good spots on there and we went to that brewery i'm gonna say it wrong i'm a gang yeah i'm a gang yeah. yep um and the our our waitress was telling us that david ortiz had his after party there did you and did you make that I wish I did, um, but because of my role, we had a bunch of other things that we had to be doing on Sunday night, which is actually one of the coolest things of this job is the Sunday night um, of induction. They have a dinner that is literally just the Living Hall of Famers, the commissioner, and myself. It is the most wow. surreal room you could ever sit in. Um, so I stayed there at that dinner, and David went off to the to Oma Gang. But actually, when I was with the Diamondbacks in 2014, um, we hosted Randy Johnson's party there. So I've seen... I've seen what the parties are like at Oma Gang. Um, David's was quite different. It obviously had a Latin flair to it, and they, they flew in a band from the Dominican. And um, it's a really cool brewery. They have a great Sunday brunch that we that you do out there. And um, I don't they, there's not only I mean the wineries. There's about four or five local wineries, which are really great. There's also um, this was this area here near Cooperstown was pretty much the the main hops producing area in the whole country in the early 1900s. And so there were breweries. I mean, Anheuser-Busch grew all their hops out here. That was what they did until there was a, a blight in the crop for a couple of years. And then ultimately they moved elsewhere. But once Omegang came back 25 years ago, now all these other little cool breweries have popped up around town. And yeah, if you're, if you're a drinker um, of wine or beer, you definitely should do that tour. I was saying to Andrew and Chris before that, like going to Cooperstown has always been on my bucket list. Um, I love hearing that list right there. Take it off. The, I tell people every day, like, take it off the bucket list, get it on your to-do list. Cause once you come, then you want to keep coming every couple of years, like come check. There's just so much cool stuff to do that, uh, one little weekend trip. And it's not that hard to, I mean, people think it's really, really hard to get to. It's really not. I mean, I think about when I was whatever younger and I would drive to Vegas on a weekend on a whim, or if you're, I mean, it's four hours from from Boston, New York, Philadelphia. I mean, it's an easy drivable weekend if you're in the Northeast, but even if you're somewhere else, I mean, landing in Albany and taking about an hour, rent a car and you're here within about an hour 15, 
and then you settle in for the weekend. You get in Friday night, have a great day Saturday and Sunday, and then head home. It's very, very doable. I was telling the guys, I wish I would have, because I was um, a few years ago, um, I was out in New York. I was training for a, a new job and um, had the opportunity. I was going to stay the weekend versus drive home and head up that way, but it was just a few hour drive. But um, it's definitely, to Jamie's point, it's it's definitely going to be something I want to do next year. Just again, just to experience just all that history and get to relive some of the moments for the Sox, you know, as we yeah. were you know, walking through there. Um, You've got a lot of moments these last 20 years. You guys have done all right for yourselves. <laughs> well, a little spoiled. Yeah, a lot spoiled. You would you would think though over the last like eighteen months of this team hasn't done anything or won anything the way this fan base is uh you know losing yeah. minds. But yeah. Um so I want to ask you, so the 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 new ballot just came out for the Hall of Fame this past week. Um, you know, again, a lot of those a lot of those players now are really just players that we grew up seeing, you know, from a fan standpoint between Beltron and K Rod, things like that. Um, Scott Rowland. What's the um for like you when new ballot comes out these players new names like what's what's the excitement level for you for someone who's been in the sport got to see these players from a different perspective you know being in working for two different teams um what's it like for you to see players like this and now kind of interact with them on the other side of it potentially coming into the hall yeah i mean it's it's actually really really cool it's a great question because i, I um first of all i don't think people realize just how how hard it is just to make the ballot um you know, Chesta and I, our VP of communications at the hall, we talk about it, it is an incredible honor just to lit to you think of how hard it is to be to make the big leagues, then to play 10 years, even to be eligible to get on the ballot, and then to actually be one of the names that gets on the ballot. Um, we actually think that that deserves probably more attention than it really gets. But um, there are several new guys on this year's list um, that whether they're Hall of Famers or not, I've been fortunate enough. I was got to got to be very close with Andre Ethier over the years. Um, in Los Angeles, um, Bronson Arroyo is one of my favorite people I've ever worked with. I, he's definitely on a an all-time favorite team of, of just such a great human. Um, and Jason Worth, also a great guy who I've known since he was literally, I mean, we traded for him as a nobody at the Dodgers back in 04. Um, I watched him help us in 04. I watched him go on to the big contract in, in D.C. and to win a World Series and to be a part of the Phillies. And then he was just recently back at the World Series. I ran into him. Um, and I actually once caught a foul ball he hit. So actually, it's kind of funny now that I think about this. I actually caught a ball that Jason Worth hit, and I did not catch a ball that Andre Ethier hit that actually hit me square between the legs in a press box. So um, I guess when I think about the ballot from that perspective, I've, I've got quite a connection to them. But um, I think what's really neat for anybody is that you are you're talking about players that that we just recently watched who are five years removed from playing and they're added. And then someone like Scott Rowland, who um, I went to Indiana University. He lives in Bloomington. Um, we're both Big Dave Matthews Band fans. Like, it's funny. I tend to look at these guys um, just as people and and good people who I think deserve a chance to get looked at by the writers. And whether they make it or not, it's an incredible honor uh, to be to be on that ballot and considered for being one of the top 1% in the history of the game. Yeah, I, I saw the... Um... Do you have like a role in um, the, the ballot that's coming up here? Um, is it the contemporary ballot um, that's coming up? Do you, do you, what's your role in that? Like, how does that, um, did you like have to like sit on like a board and like present players? Like, how does that work? 
Um, so I'm not involved in the actual creation of the ballot itself. That's done by the Historical Review Committee, which is 11 baseball writers um, with in incredible service to the game. Law, not not just like five to 10 years, like 20, 30 years that have been around the game. They help build the ballot itself. Um, my role is really, um, we, we help put together the electorate, the voters, the 16-person committee um, that we bring to the board for their approval. But it's a, it's a group of 16 um, a combination of living Hall of Famers, uh, long-tenured executives in the game, and then historians. So part of what we do is we'll help put together that group of 16 to try to make sure that it's a fair and honest group of people who who don't have a conflict of interest necessarily in the room. They, they, they've watched the game for a long time, but we don't want anybody who's been so close with the candidates that it's impossible for them to be um, – objective about what's going on in the room. And then I do get to sit in that room when it's all discussed in December. Um, and ultimately, I'll be the one who makes the announcement on MLB Network uh, on that Sunday night, December 4th, at the winter meetings. Um, but I don't actually get a vote and I don't build the ballot. We really help kind of shepherd the process along. So heavily involved in all of it, but I don't get a say in anything really, um, which is the way it should be. I mean, it's we've always felt like our job is not to decide who goes into the Hall of Fame. Our job is to set up the process and then let the baseball writers vote on it. And once the baseball writers have had their say, we let the era committees take a look. And well, however it turns out, we're always going to honor those results. Thank you for checking out the latest episode of the Sox Specs Red Sox podcast brought to you by Beyond the Monster. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Type in Beyond the Monster and all of our podcast episodes will be available. In addition, head on over to beyondthemonster.substack.com for all of our content that drops daily. <laughs>